Pathetic. Ooh. Okay. We are, for the third time, we are in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 23, and then verses 46 through the end. As you guys are aware, I'm sure uh, the book of Daniel is kind of divided in, in two sections. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 are a series of uh, vignettes from Daniel's life, scenes and occurrences from Daniel's life where people that he knew, as you're going to see uh, in the next chapter, chapter 3. And then chapters 7 through 12 are very, very much prophetic in nature. Chapter 2 kind of breaks that mold a little bit. I know we're only to chapter 2, and we're already saying there's an exception to the rule, because there's a lot of prophecy in chapter 2. Um, the prophetic section of the book, we, I'm not going to cover this morning. James is going to cover that next week. So save all of your questions about the prophetic stuff for James next week. He is going to be able to answer all of them for you, okay? What we're going to do this morning is instead kind of look at the scene, how it developed, and look at Daniel's reaction and, and hopefully glean some things from Daniel's life um, and his character as we look at these verses together. I had some great conversations with my wife uh, um, regarding this book uh, before I came here. And, and one of the things, um, she and I, who grew up in a very similar um, background, are, are, came from Christian families in the assemblies, we were in Sunday school, you know, the week after we were born and, and grew up through the whole, the whole thing. We got the full package um, as, as far as, uh, you know, growing up in assembly goes. Uh, what a blessing, right? And um, we remember, um, and there's not many of you who are going to remember this, like we remember being taught Daniel from flannel graphs, okay? And, and you remember the stories and, and you remember uh, these events and they're, they're wonderful stories, right? They, they're captivating. One of the things that can be forgotten in that, and, and John touched on this uh, in last week's message, is, is Daniel's a real person. Daniel's a real person. And Daniel isn't living in Babylon. Yeah, yeah I know he's living in Babylon. Daniel's not there by choice. Daniel probably came from what we would call in our society an upper-class, aristotic sort of family, a well-educated family. And he was taken as a captive, as a hostage, by force, emasculated, and sent to a foreign pagan country literally as a slave. He was forcibly enrolled in the University of Babylon, and he's, he's in a three-year program in chapter one to learn a foreign language and to learn to serve the government and the people that have taken him away. Folks, the, the book of Daniel is not a Disney movie. It is not a Hallmark movie. Daniel's never going home. Daniel's never going to see his family again. Daniel's never going to have a wife or a family. Daniel will not live a day of his life that he had known prior to him being taken captive. It's all gone, and it's not coming back. That's Daniel's reality, folks. That is the backdrop for the rest of this book. Daniel chapter 2, 
verse 1. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Okay, we got a little time reference here. Nebuchadnezzar's second year is actually Daniel's third year in captivity. He has now recently graduated from Babylon U, as we saw right at the end of chapter 1, and he is one of the king's counselors. John touched on this last week. I want to reiterate this. Of all the stuff we said about how Daniel got there and what his life is like, Daniel applied himself and did the best he could in the circumstance he was in. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Here it is now, Nebuchadnezzar, his, his uh, second year of reign. Daniel's a recent graduate and he is serving in the king's court. The king has a dream, and his spirit is troubled. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. And then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. And if you're a student of scripture, what happens here and why this is important um, at Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, Daniel's going to stop writing in Hebrew, and he's going to start writing in Aramaic. And he's going to keep writing in Aramaic right into chapter 7. I think it's verse 28 of chapter 7. He writes in Aramaic, which is the new language he has been taught. Right? Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me, or I'm, I'm making this firm decision. There's another way to translate that. If you will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Verse 7, they, being the Chaldeans, they answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation of it. This is sort of an interesting interaction, isn't it? Talk about a tough boss, right? You ever have an interaction with a tough boss? I, I, I never boss, never have I, have, had a, never have I had a boss who said, if you don't give me the answer that I'm asking of you, I'm going to cut you in pieces and make your house into a pile of rubble, okay? Nebuchadnezzar is a tough boss, right? And he, he asks a tough question. And it's, it's almost funny because these are, these are the smartest people that he has gathered around him. And he makes this incredible demand of them. Not just interpret my dream for me, but first relate the dream I had and then give me the interpretation. And you can almost see in the scripture the Chaldeans going, um, you, didn't, you didn't just say what we thought we heard you just say. And so that's why we have verse 7 as they ask again, uh, Lord, we must have heard you wrong. You tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. That, 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 that clarifying question, right? And the king, in verse 8, 
makes it very clear that he hasn't misspoken. And the king answered and said, I know of certainty that you would gain the time or stall for time because you see the thing is gone from me or because my command is firm. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. King Nebuchadnezzar is actually incredibly insightful. He knows um, that it's more than likely that these guys have given him counsel or given his father counsel based on pure speculation. And so here's the test Nebuchadnezzar puts to them. I will know that your interpretation of the dream is legit if you can tell me what the dream was. There's really no arguing with that logic, right? The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there is not a man upon the earth, we're in verse 10, that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asked such a thing of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. It is a rare thing that the king requireth, and there is none other that can show it before the king, except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. King, they say, you're asking an impossible question. They're making the point that there is no um, rational way. There is no natural way that they can answer or respond to his request. And they make this interesting point that the only, the only way that this request could be granted is through supernatural power. The answer isn't with men, they say. Look what they say there at the verse, end of verse 11. There is no one who can show it except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. There is no natural or rational way to respond to your question. Well, if you've had a difficult boss and you've told that boss no to a request, how have they responded? Well, Nebuchadnezzar has just been told no, and he doesn't respond well. Verse 12, for this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So we can understand from that description that uh, uh, Daniel and his three friends were not, were not present during this exchange. But they're now being sought out. And the, the order has been given, that's it. The king says, I've had enough of you fakers and liars you are no use to me. I'm putting you all to death. And the decree goes out, and they're, they're looking for Daniel and his friends. Verse 14, then Daniel answered, 
with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. It's interesting. The King James renders that uh, Daniel's answer was with counsel and with wisdom. Uh, if you have the NIV, it says wisdom intact. Uh, the NASB has discretion and discernment. Um, ESV is prudence and discretion. Well, what characterized an answer like that? Listen, these guys are, these, this guy's, this is a serious problem, right? Daniel's new on the job. Right out of school, crisis hits, and his head is literally on the line. He says he responds with wisdom and counsel. What does that look like? Verse 15, he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty or so urgent from the king? Daniel asks a very simple question. What, what is going on? Why is this such an urgent matter? And then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. And then Daniel, verse 16, went in and desired of the king that he would give him time that he would show the king the interpretation. So Daniel has this amazing ability to have access to the king. And so as soon as he is aware of what the issue is, he goes right to the king and says, I need some time. He doesn't say no, like the other wise men said. The other wise men said, no, this can't be done. Daniel says, I need some time. Folks, let's stop there for a second. Well, let's read verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire, verse 18, mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Why is it, do you think, that Daniel was able to go into the king and say, something other than, no, your request is impossible. Why is that? What did Daniel know about God? What did Daniel know about God? Yeah? The thing that is rationally and naturally impossible. These other people that had said that to the king, these are, these are not, you know, jamokes off the street. These, these, are, these aren't the dregs of society that they've just they've brought in and said, ah, what do you think? These are all highly educated, highly qualified people, these other wise men. The, the King James and, and some of the translations calls them sorcerers and, and, and other stuff. And we get the idea that these are like witch doctors. These, these guys are the most highly educated people in their culture. And they look at the, the problem and they go, that simply can't be done. They're not saying making that statement from a position of ignorance. And Daniel turns around and goes, King, we just need a little time. What gave him the confidence to say that? 
What gave him the confidence to say that is he knew something of the character of God, that the things that are impossible with men are possible with God. That God knows everything. And so it was no problem, even with his head on the line, for Daniel to approach Nebuchadnezzar and say, give us a little bit of time. Your question can be answered. It can be answered. And so Daniel goes to his friends, and they decide to have a prayer meeting. That's a good thing. Remember, it's always a good time to pray. They pray their desire, um, mercy of the God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And that's a very legit prayer, right? They knew exactly what was at stake, their lives. It's interesting, the scope of their prayers is pretty narrow, right? The purpose behind it. Their purpose is, Lord, we, if we don't have this answer, we are all going to die. Please, please be merciful to us. It's not stated here in their prayer, and maybe they were just so focused, or maybe Daniel chose not to record it. Daniel and his friends are not praying that the, the true God of heaven would be glorified, that there be some magnificent outcome for this on the other side. They're, they're, the scope of their prayer is pretty limited to, if, if, this, if, you, if Lord, if you're not merciful, we are all going to die. You know, we don't have to have um, big, gigantic, eloquent, thought-out, flowery stuff to approach God with, right? Simple, honest, direct, to the point. That was, that's what characterized this prayer. Lord, if, if, you don't, if you don't show us mercy, we are literally all going to die. Verse 19, then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. There's an immediate response from God. Isn't that beautiful? There's a God who hears the prayers of his faithful ones. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now here's an interesting thing. In response to the Lord answering the prayer, how does Daniel respond? How does Daniel respond? Well, it's right here in the text. He doesn't, uh, um, he doesn't run out and tell the king. He doesn't run out and tell his friends. Uh, first, he, uh, he stops and he, and he prays some more. And this is his prayer. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever." and ever, for wisdom and might are his. Daniel just begins to worship. The Lord answers his prayer, and he doesn't break out into thank you for saving my life and, and thinking about himself. His thoughts are immediately turned to, God, you're amazing. You're amazing. And this, this phrase he uses here in this verse, that wisdom and might are his, uh, the way the verb is constructed there, Daniel is saying wisdom and might are intrinsically part, God, of who you are. It's not that just you possess these qualities, 
but you are wisdom. You are might. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. So, I'm spoiler alert. So Daniel knows what the the dream is, and he knows the interpretation of it at this point. That's why he says what he says here, right? But you're going to have to wait till next week till that whole setting up kings and removing kings gets fleshed out. Daniel knows what's going to happen. He knows what has just happened, right? And he, he acknowledges that the God who has the intrinsic quality of wisdom and might from verse 20 has now bestowed a little bit of that to him, right? That Daniel isn't aware of these things because Daniel is well-educated and smart and tuned in and, and spiritual. Daniel knows what he knows, not because he's great, but because God has shown it to him. He has been given a portion of the wisdom and the might, which is intrinsic to God. It didn't come from himself. Verse 22, he reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. Beautiful, beautiful prayer here. Daniel um, prays this, this, this prayer now of, of thanksgiving. This attribute of God that he is the revealer of secrets. He is the revealer of secrets. I'm skipping ahead to the application part. But what is one of the things that the Lord Jesus declares in the gospel? How do we get to know who God is? How does anyone, Jesus declares, get to know who God is? Whomever the Son reveals them to. We know God through the revelation that we have in the Son, Jesus Christ. It is another part of his character. God is a revealer of secrets. He's a revealer of secrets. There's very few secrets that God keeps to himself. There's a whole lot of things that he has made available to be revealed, if you're interested. What's one of the secrets that God has kept to himself? We talk about it a lot in the days we're in. <laughs> when he returns, he didn't, he didn't give us that exact date and time. With good reason, right? Because all of us would do nothing until 10 minutes before the time was. <laughs> but there's tons of other stuff that has been revealed about God. He is a revealer of secrets. He knows what's in the darkness. Nothing is hidden from him. The writer of Hebrews would say that all things are open and naked before him. The light dwelleth with him. He is the source 
of light. He is uncreated light. First John, God is light. What does light do? Light reveals. Light reveals. Then notice this, verse 23, the end of this prayer. And, and if, you, if you're one of the kind of folks that likes to, to uh, categorize prayer, and it, it has the whole, it has all the aspects of uh, you know, worship, ador- adoration, uh, praise, thanksgiving. And there's really no petition in this one because the question has already been answered. And so here we are in the praise section, verse 23. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers who has given me wisdom and might. Again, reference back to verse 20. This thing has been received from the one in whom it is intrinsic and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Here's the cool thing. God is not just a God who is um, intrinsically uh, full of wisdom and might. God is not just the God who is the revealer of secrets. God is not just the God, the giver of of wisdom and might. Daniel says this, God has seen and heard me. Me. He, He is not so big and so distant that he doesn't see me in my hour of need. But he heard my prayer. And he answered me, me. Skip down to verse 46. The intervening verses that we have skipped are all about uh, the dream and the interpretation. And this is what happens at the end of that. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life. I have never had anybody bow down and worship me and then command that sacrifices be, uh, be offered in my name. Right? Big moment. Big moment. Right? Is any of this right? Not, not really. Right? And this is... And James is going to cover this. Daniel says a bunch of times and over and over again, listen, this didn't come from me. This, this, isn't, this didn't come from me. This was revealed to me by God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't hear any of that stuff and treats Daniel like he's a god. All right? How do we live in a pagan culture as a righteous person? Well, we don't expect them to get it right every step of the way. Okay? Daniel doesn't say, hey, king, knock that off. Stop doing what you're doing this wrong. Don't do that. Daniel leaves the Holy Spirit some space to let Nebuchadnezzar grow. And it's going to be a cool growth that you guys are going to see in Nebuchadnezzar by the end of chapter 4. So the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou could reveal this secret. So Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, goes from this place of being clearly, completely ignorant of the God of heaven, and he now has learned some bit of truth through this interaction with Daniel concerning the God of heaven. Doesn't have the whole story, doesn't have it all right, doesn't understand the whole thing, but he's, re- he's, he's understood a bit of truth about God. 
And then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And then Daniel requested of the king and he sent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. And so the king makes good on his promise and and Daniel is promoted in this way, which, um, again, spoiler alert for chapter 3, when everybody else in the kingdom is told they have to uh, do something that is contrary to the word of God, Daniel is apparently exempted from that in chapter 3, but not his three friends. Cool story, isn't it? It's a great story. It's history. It's not just a story. It really happened. It really happened. What can we glean? saints, from this amazing account in Daniel's life. Um, I would just want to point out a couple of things. Um, Daniel is not in the place of his choosing. He's, He's not doing the thing of his choosing for the people he would choose to do it with. But what Daniel is doing is he is blooming where he has been planted, And he's doing so without bitterness towards God or to the people around him. Think about that. In your experience, in your life, and and maybe it's in the past, maybe it's right now, are you in a place in your life where you would not choose to be? Are you with some people that you would choose to not be with? Has, has the thought occurred in your heart or in your mind, God, what have you done? This is not how my life was supposed to turn out. Daniel's in the place he's in. He's doing the thing he's doing. And he is doing that without bitterness towards either God or the people around him. Folks, if, if I know, sorry, I'm, I kind of love history. So Daniel's taken captive in 605 by the Babylonians. Finishes his three-year degree. And so it's somewhere around probably 601, 602 in Babylon. Daniel's there. He's now been promoted to this high position in the, the government of the kingdom of Babylon. And in a few years, there's going to be another rebellion in Judah. In, in 597. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to send another army to put down that rebellion. And more Jews are going to be taken captive and brought back to Israel. And then a few years later, with Daniel still in this position, this high position in government in Babylon, in 586, there's going to be another rebellion in Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to send another army to, to, to Judah and destroy the city of Jerusalem. Wrecks it. Smashes the walls down. Burns the place to the ground. These are Daniel's people. I honestly don't know the intent of this, but I can tell you this, in the Jewish Bible, the book of Daniel is not listed with the prophets. It's not grouped with the prophets. 
It's grouped in the section that's called the writing. And I know that's a man-made distinction. But I don't think the Jews ever forgave Daniel. Where are you in your life right now? Are, where, are you where you would choose to be? Or are you someplace else? And again, these things aren't because of bad decisions Daniel made. God put him here. He put him here. And Daniel is doing the best he can do in the place that he is. And he is doing this without bitterness towards God or to man. John alluded to in a prayer earlier, and I'll, I'll tell you this from personal experience. My wife and I, uh, you guys know, we have a handicapped son at home, and my mother-in-law who lives with us has late-stage dementia. She, um, th There's nothing left of the woman that my wife knew as her mother. And I got to tell you, every day is difficult. Every day is difficult. And every interaction is excruciating, and it's emotionally painful for my wife every day. And she wonders, and she prays, Lord, why don't you change my circumstances? Maybe you know something of that same Daniel. Maybe you know something of that same prayer. Daniel did. You know, it's a, it's, a, um, it's a pitfall. It's a dangerous place to get to. Because it looks like Daniel was, um, like I said, he was probably from a good family. He clearly had a great base of knowledge in, the, in God's word. And so you can get to a place of thinking, Lord, I, I checked all the boxes. And put it in our present day sense. Lord, I'm, I'm, I, I'm a faithful member of the assembly. I, I, I sent my kids to Sunday school. I attended the midweek prayer meeting. I went that far. Why is it that my life isn't what I wanted it to be? And see, in the undercurrent of that, right, is God, you owed me better. I earned Dangerous and wrong mindset because God's a debtor to no man. God doesn't owe me anything. Saints, do you understand what God's doing in your life? Do you understand what he's doing in your life? 1 John chapter 3, I think it's verse 2, says this. What God is doing in each one of our lives is he is getting us to a place where we look like his son. That's what he's busy doing. That is his desire and his plan for each one of us, that we would get us to a place where we're like his son, the son of God. That takes some work. I know it does in my life. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says this, right? He who has begun a good work will be faithful to complete it in you. The wonderful truth is that God's not going to grow tired and throw up his hands in dismay and disgust and impatience working on Dave George. He's going to keep working on that. And he's going to bring it to pass. I can either cooperate in his efforts in my life, or, or I cannot. And guess how it goes if you don't cooperate. Verse 14 that we looked at, Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom. Another application we can pull from this. Um, Daniel's relationship with the God of heaven impacted how he related and he talked to others, even to those who opposed him or literally sought to harm him. Was I supposed to be done at 1130? Okay. Daniel answered with wisdom and tact to someone who literally was seeking to harm him. Turn over, if you would, Ephesians chapter 5. And as we're turning there, I got to tell you, I have a Facebook account. Um, but I haven't been on Facebook in a while. Because it's... it. it it got um, very difficult to read things that people were posting and, and dealing with my desire to want to respond. Here's what the Word of God, the instruction to believers is. Ephesians chapter 5, um, let's start in verse 1. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which is not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. Verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, for it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Turn over, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Verse 8, but now ye also put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, that is God. Daniel responded to someone who sought his harm with wisdom and tact. One of the things I do when I'm trying to understand something is I try to understand what it isn't, or I look at the opposite. So what would be the opposite of wisdom and tact? The simplest definition I came up would be stupid and rude. 
Daniel did not respond in a stupid and rude manner. Guess what I find when I look on Facebook? Saints, most of my friends are Christians on Facebook. When the world is stupid and rude, they're just doing their own thing. That's what they do. They, they don't know any better. Right? It's just one aspect of life here. Do, does the way I communicate, both with those that I love, and as the New Testament would say of the unsaved, those are those that are without the unsaved. Does the same, do I communicate with them in the same way, with wisdom and tact? Do, does the way I interact with them give evidence of the truth that resides in me. It's, it's a really simple part of our life, right? Communicating goes on all the time. Is it consistent with a faithful life, though? Is it consistent with the testimony that we bear? And then my, my last application for this passage from Daniel is a couple of just a simple questions. How big is your God? How big is your God? Daniel was confronted with something that was humanly absolutely impossible. How big is your God? I remember in Sunday school, we used to sing that song, He's Able. Remember that? He's able. I know he's able. Do I, do you believe that you personally matter to God? Do you believe that? That you individually matter to God? That he knows your name? That he knows your pain. That he knows your hurt. That he knows who's the time. How big is your God? You know, our prayers give us a clue as to how big we think God is. Big is your God. Daniel thanks and praises God for hearing and answering his request with a positive response. Daniel got a positive response. Do we and and that and that's right, that's cool. That's great. Absolutely, right? What happens when God says no? What happens when the cancer doesn't go away? What happens when the baby is born and is not healthy? Is he still good? 
is he still praiseworthy? Is he still God? When the answer is no. A brother this morning shared from the book of Job. It's a fascinating thing that, and, and if you look at Job's prayers, one of the things he said and declared amongst his was this about God, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. How big is your God? What's he like? Are you okay where you are? Are you living your life in the quiet confidence that your Father in heaven, who sent his Son to redeem you from a lost eternity, sees you individually, loves you, more deeply than you can ever comprehend. And has you at a place and at a time in your life where he is actively conforming you to the image of his son. And some of those things that are going on in your life may not be ones that you would have ever in a million years chosen for yourself. But you recognize that God is being good to you right now. And you can praise him for that without bitterness towards him or anyone around you. That was the heart of Daniel. And it challenges me. Is that, is that my heart? Is that my heart? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that it is through a like precious faith in him that we gather this morning. But we thank you so much, Father, that in your mercy and in your goodness to us, you've seen fit to record um, these events in the lives of faithful folk like Daniel. Lord, we thank you that you are the revealing God. And we thank you that you have revealed Yourself to us in the person of your son who loved us and gave himself for us. Lord, help us, each one, as we live in a pagan world to live our lives faithfully. We, we pray, Lord, that in our minds and in our hearts um, we, we would have a good idea of how big you are. That in our very spirits, we would know that you're able. Lord, help us. Help me. Help anyone here this morning who is um, in a place they wouldn't choose, in a way they wouldn't choose, with folks they wouldn't choose, who are wondering and hurting. Lord, I pray that you administer grace to those hearts that they would see your hand of love at work, that their confidence would be in you. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of Daniel. Thank you so much for the time that we have spent together. May uh, the teaching of your word uh, find expression in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray believing that you can bring this to pass because you are the amazing God. 
thank you so much that you are bringing us to the place of being like your son. How we all yearn to be there sooner rather than later. Lord, thank you for your patience with us. We give you thanks in his precious and worthy name. Amen.